The St. Charles County Veterans Museum is a 501c3 nonprofit business. The museum would not exist without the donations of our generous community. Your donations ensure the museum continues to share and preserve the stories of our veterans. Would you like to be part of something special? To donate, visit sccvetsmuseum.org and click on Donate. This podcast is sponsored by the Renee S. Real Estate Agency, located here in O'Fallon, Missouri. She is licensed in Missouri and Illinois and focuses on your personal and commercial insurance needs. Her office is located at 2764 Highway K, O'Fallon, Missouri, 63368. She can be reached at 636-379-9556 or by email at reneesri at allstate.com, R-E-N-E-E-E-S-S-A-R-Y at allstate.com. If you are shopping for insurance and want an active agent that will educate and advise you on the coverage you need, reach out to her. The information, opinions, and recommendations presented in this podcast are for general information only. The primary purpose of the Dog Tag Podcast is to educate. The views, information, or opinions expressed on the Dog Tag Podcast are solely the views of the individuals or guests involved and by no means represent absolute facts. The Dog Tag does not accept responsibility for their views or comments. Welcome to the Dog Tag Podcast from the St. Charles County Veterans Museum with your host Jason Galvin and Jim Higgins. And today in studio we have Angela Peacock, U.S. Army. Jim, go ahead and kick us off. Well, welcome, Angela. It's great to see you again. It's been about a year now. And uh, I, I kind of joked before you, when you came in, and I called you the bravest woman I know. And, and I truly do mean that. I said, you know, from, you know, you've taught us a bunch. And one of the missions of the museum here is certainly to tell the stories of our veterans returning, you know, from service. And, and you were very frank in your story. And, and you taught us a lot about, you know, what our veterans face when they come home and first few days they're not in uniform Mm -hmm. and uh, I think it's important that our veterans share those stories because I don't think there's any awareness the public doesn't have much awareness of what our veterans go through right so I uh I love your story it's on our website in case anybody wants to read it but you know at the very beginning I, I love the the intro to the story when you talk about you were very much like a Demi Moore joining the <laughs> army. You, uh, I think your words were you could kick any man's, any boy's ass back then. You could outrun yeah. them. And, yeah. and uh, tell us a little bit about your decision to join the army early on. Um, well, my grandparents were both in the service uh, during World War II. My grandfather did sheet metal in Germany, and my grandmother was an air traffic controller in Florida. And so I do remember seeing his uniform, you know, on the weekends in the summer, and he, he would go away for a couple of weeks for training. So it was kind of like always in the back of my head, like, if things don't pan out, like, I could join the military, you know. But um, really it was, I was um, in college going to community St. Louis Community College. I was um, waitressing tables at one of the airport hotels, and I was just like, I don't want this life. Like, I want a life of meaning and, like, purpose and something important. And so... Every time I would go grocery shopping, I would see armed forces recruiting on the shop, on the little shop, uh, what, what they call that? Like the little, Desk. yeah, just like the little strip mall oh. in the strip mall. And so one day I just went in there and I said, okay, I think I want to join the army. What do you want me? Where do I sign? And he was like, hold on, hold on, slow down. 
<laughs> we had to, you got to take tests and all this stuff. And then when I scored really high on the test, he was like, okay, I know he was going to get points because I was a good recruit. So I signed up and was like ready to go immediately. And, um, a lot of my friends didn't believe me. So I shaved my head and it was after watching GI Jane. I was like, I'm going to be like her, you know, <laughs> that's what you do when you're 22. You know? Yeah. So you're, um, this is what year was this about? That was 1998. So I graduated high school and I was gone within six months. Six mm-hmm. months. So you went in prior to nine one one, and you went to boot camp where? I was at boot camp in Fort Jackson, South Carolina. And then, AIT was in Fort Gordon, Georgia. Fort Gordon, okay. So you, you completed your basic training, and, and I guess the world at that time, everything was... Pretty peaceful, it, relatively. It was, mm-hmm. it was. Yeah. And, and then you, your first deployment was at Korea. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a, a lot of people talk about Korea, and it's, it's you know, when you're up at the DMZ, there's... It's a dangerous place. It still is. A little scary. We went on a tour there, and I remember them saying, we had to wear our uniforms, and they said, like, they could pull you over the border, and they'll keep you. And so we were really, like, on our best behavior. But you saw the North Koreans looking at us through binoculars and stuff. It was it was very creepy. No cameras allowed. Um, I remember seeing, like, Claymore Mines on the bus trail on the way up, pointed that direction, north. Um, yeah, it was a little tense, a little tense up there, yeah. And the Cold War was alive and well up there. I guess it's, uh, you know, still going on. You know, there's never been a true sign. Mm-hmm. So, Angela, I know, I know from your story that you experienced a, you know, the, there was a, you were sexually assaulted in Korea, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, one of the, and what we learn, you know, that women in the military, they're at risk for that happening. And uh, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. So I was uh, stationed in South Korea, and back then you could not walk through the gate without a buddy. So I had, what do they call it, CIT training the next morning, which is basically like first aid skills, survival skills, mountaineering, GPS, you know, how to read a map, those kind of skills that next morning. So I went out with my friends, but knowing I can't stay out long because I have training in the morning on a Saturday morning. So... um like, let me think, just like long story short, I had a couple of very small drinks, like not enough to get drunk. Okay. And the next thing I remember is, um, being thrown around in a very violent manner in a bed without my consent and thinking to myself, I want to scream, but nothing was coming out. And I could hear a roommate on the other side of the room. Like if I could just get his attention, maybe he would help me. Um, but apparently I had blacked out somehow. There's There was a date rape drug going around that base during that period of time, and a bunch of MP women had been assaulted also. So I, it was known, but, like, I could not have seen it coming. I was absolutely, um, like, the worst violation you can ever experience. Um, and then the next morning like not knowing like what just happened to me. Like I have no idea what happened. And so it took me like several days to piece it together and ask people like, did you see this guy when we were out? What was he doing? And they were like, he was following you around. He was giving you a drink. You know, these things like that made, that helped me like piece together what happened. So then I approached my command that next day because I knew something really bad happened. I'm not going to get too explicit, but there was like physical things on my body that told me like, this is what happened, you know? So I told my, um, platoon sergeant my platoon leader 
and I, I remember my platoon leader smelling my breath. Like, are you, were you drunk? And I was like, no, absolutely not. Like I knew I had training the next day. Um, and then my platoon sergeant said, okay, do you realize that if you tell on this guy, he's higher ranking than you, they will take one of his ranks and they'll transfer him to another duty station and he will go on with his life, but they will make you look like a party girl and that you were wearing the wrong clothing or you were drinking too many drinks. And then you're the one that's going to lose your career. Is that what you want to happen? And I was like, I didn't do anything wrong. I was coming back early and I had to walk through the gate with this guy and then he raped me. Like, what, what do you mean I'm going to be put on trial? Like, that was so confusing to me because I knew that I didn't do anything wrong. So then he said, okay, well, if you, if you don't want to go through with that, then this conversation never happened. And then he literally walked out of the room and closed the door and that was it. So my way to deal with that was, okay, um, so I was very confused. Like, you're telling me, well, you know, of course, I'm 3,000 miles away from my family and so I didn't, you know, I'm a 21-year-old kid, like, overseas. So I, I counted on my roommate, and really, me and her confronted the guy at a restaurant. And he literally told me to my face, you said no, but I did it anyway. And that, like, just the cruelness of that, like, you, and I remember saying no. I remember saying no, I don't, I don't know you. And I said it twice, and then I said, no, I have a fiancé. And then I said, no, I'm having the female part of the month. Like, no. You know, I said it four times, like how many more times do you have to say it? And then somebody just does it anyway. Um, so that's, I know it's kind of graphic, but that's what happened. And then um, I threw myself into my job and I, I reenlisted for Germany to get the hell out of there as fast as I could. And I went to PLDC, which is the training course for when you want to become a non-commissioned officer. So I was like, that'll get me out of here for a month. Like, let me just get away from him because he was in a neighboring unit, so I would see him in the hallway often. And then I had a lot of guys that were in my unit that I called my football team, and they kind of stood up for me and was like, leave her alone or we're going to kick your ass, you know. So that was the only way I could deal with it. But, yeah, rape is, what do they consider? They, they call it a occupational hazard of being a female in the military. When I, when I hear that, and of course, and when I read your story a while back and heard it, I'd like to think that things have changed nowadays, but if you – Start looking and searching. Uh, no. I think you've even said it that women are twice as likely yep. to be raped in the military, and uh, literally fifty percent of the women report, you know, sexual harassment. And by and large, it sounds like much hasn't changed. No, no. And I mean, like, just to tell you the impact of that. Um, what year was that? Two thousand two. I had a platoon sergeant that would follow me around um, while I was doing my job, and he would say you look really good from behind in your uniform. And to this day, like 20, okay, 19 years later, I cannot let a man walk behind me. Like that's just the impact of like one comment, like of always thinking my body is like for people to look at, you know? And even when I was in the service, I remember thinking, I just came here to do a job. Like I just want to be in the military. I just want to be part of the family. I don't want to be a sexual object at every turn or something to be joked about or some kind of music to play to see if it gets a rise out of me or somebody's asking me for a date because I just am nice to them. Like it was like I could not get away from it. It's so exhausting, you know, and not all guys are like that. And I'm not trying to say that. I'm just trying to explain like the depth of the the culture is like so sexualized and people are young and I get it. It's on the same on college campuses, but it's just, it seems to be doubly worse in the military. So you buried that pretty much and, and yeah. went in, you know, dove into your work 
And then you did leave Korea, and you were back in Washington, I believe, when 9-11 happened. And uh, I think your words were you knew you were going to go to Iraq. Yeah, we were in D.C. Uh, for a conference at the time when the towers fell. And um, the minute they fell, and we they were it was announced during the conference, and everybody went running to the phones. I was like, here comes war. Like, we just you just know, you know, that's what you train for. That's what you expect. You know, that's what you prepare for. So I was not surprised, no. And one of the, I believe you went over to Iraq in May of, May of 2003, was it? Yeah. So they invaded the airport, I think, in mid-March. And so I was on the ground about a month and a half later, right after the initial invasion. And I've had a, I've had a number of discussions with different, with different people and, and actually met a few women that, that served over there and talked to some Iraq and Afghanistan veterans. And, and I guess one of the fallacies that I don't think the public understand is women weren't officially in combat until, what was it, 2013? Something like that. And yeah. your life, you were at risk every day driving yeah, in a convoy they, in what was called the Triangle of Death. Mm-hmm. And, um, and and I guess the other thing that kind of bothers me in a way, I, 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 I guess I was naive when I came into this role here, thinking that the, the world's greatest, most powerful army had all of our veterans, our, our warriors equipped with the best equipment and all they ever needed, you know, and and then I learned from you that you got up every day and said, well, I have limited body armor. Where am I going to get hit today? So you're driving on convoys, and uh, death is all around you, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, we had 42 people on my base, and we only had 12 sets of armor. So every day, whoever went on that convoy, we would say, okay, are you going to wear yours in the front, or are you going to wear it in the back? And you're like, it was kind of like making a bet. Like, am I going to get shot in the front today, or am I going to get shot in the back? I don't really know. Yeah, there was that. We didn't have any armor on our Humvees. People were putting, like, steel plates and tying them with, um, what's that called, paracord. And they would put sand in the bottom of the, what is that called, the wheel wells. So that if you hit, and I thought, that's the stupidest thing. If you roll over a roadside bomb, it's just going to throw sand into your wounds. Why would you do that? So it's you just kind of, like, swallow all that down and try not to think about it because if you really think about it like this is not safe like in no realm of the possibilities is this safe you know and you're driving convoys what three three days three three to four times a week for six months um should i just jump into where where i got ill and all that so yeah when i when i first got to iraq i was like 140 pounds muscle well-trained um very lean body fat and then very quickly within like the first I would say two months, I dropped down to 100 pounds. You could see all of my cheekbones, my ribs. I mean, I, I looked like I was starving, but I wasn't. Um, and then I started like to faint and have panic attacks. I thought, I'm going to die here. I'm either going to die from getting shot on a convoy or a bomb or a missile or who knows, or I'm going to die from whatever the sickness is that I have acquired that nobody seems to know what it is and there's no medical treatment here. So that caused like... To me, I felt like double the PTSD. Like, I'm either going to get killed this way or this way, and I'm probably not going to make it out alive. So um, I stayed in that state for six months. I started getting fevers and fainting and nosebleeds and all this crazy stuff started happening to me. My heart rate was out of, like, AFib or something. Like, heart rate was speed up for no reason. Um, And then finally, we had a change of command. We got a new commander, and she took one look at me, and she's like, you're going to die. And I was like, I know, but nobody seems to care. Like, I'm stuck here, you know? So she's like, well, we got to get you medevaced out. So 
it took three or four days to finally get on a flight, but I got out on a medevac flight to Germany and they did a whole bunch of tests. And the only thing they were found was um, basically my colon was infected on the inside. So I couldn't absorb food. I wasn't absorbing nutrients, nothing like that. And then the very next day, my unit got hit on a convoy. And so I'm just fresh on the ground in Germany thinking, okay, I think I'm safe now. And then I see my soldier, one of my soldiers come back on a stretcher. And that day, I, I, that day, it's just like, they say like post-traumatic stress is like when you exceed your coping ability to deal with trauma. And it was that day that like my teacup was over full and I could not hold any more bad news or trauma or drama or anything. So when I saw him come back, he told me the story of what happened to him. He was basically bleeding out. There was a bomb that went off and it lodged itself in his back. And then like he's telling me this story and he's getting really upset and worked up. And I'm like, I just can't, I can't hold this anymore. And I saw the sign for psychiatry and I just walked down the hallway because I thought that's what you're supposed to do. And from that day, I was medicated and labeled and medically retired. And it just like completely ruined my life when I asked for help. Now, you you were the squad leader, weren't you? I was um, a team leader. So I had three on my team. But in Iraq, technically, I was I was the operations NCO. So I was in charge of running all the convoys. I mean, one thing we learned from a lot of the veterans is when that happens, just the way you said, of course, the guilt that yeah. you weren't there, you weren't yeah, able to stop there. it, yeah. or you could have helped in some yes. manner. Yes. You know, and that's that's another trauma yeah. to add to that yeah. list. Yeah. So you um, you walk down the hall, you you ask for help, and their reaction was to put you on drugs. Meds. Yeah. And so I was put on 45 different psychiatric drugs in a 13-year period. Wow. And I should be dead like five times over. One of the most profound things that you said to me, and and I, I just, you know, it, it's, I think it's very important. You know, you kind of call it medicating normal, but if you said something to the effect, if, if I didn't feel the way I felt, I wouldn't have been normal. Right. And they want to medicate that normal instead of trying to help. Yeah. And I think that's an important distinction. What you were feeling was perfectly normal. It's perfectly normal. And they choose to drug you. Yep. I think that's cruel because I feel I feel robbed of my healing process. I feel robbed of like being able to go through that and feel it in a natural way without like being medicated and like going through therapy and being told like you're mentally ill now. Like I didn't I didn't even question that. I just thought I felt like I got, I like caught some crazy brain disease that I had no control over and like now I'm going crazy and can't even control myself. So I just have to listen to doctors and do what they say. But now I like, I just really regret that. Like that's my one regret. It was asking for help and the help that I got it was just totally wrecked my life. Has that changed at all or do they have any different process now that, no, or, or is it I still mean, the same? I, I, I speak about this all over the world and it's like so common. It's, I, I hear veterans every day. I, I'm on 13 meds. I'm on eight meds. Like there's no science for that. And they shouldn't be on, you know, yeah, I know that we suffer and we have distress and we have extreme things that happen, but like nobody knows that science. When you throw somebody on 15 drugs, what is it going to do to them long term? It's just, it's to me, it's like crazy and it's cruel because again, when whatever, whatever my reaction was, was a normal reaction. That is not a brain disease. That is not a disorder. 
you can call it post-traumatic stress if you want to. Yes, it was stressful, moral injury. You can call it that. But, like, that is not a brain disease that needs a Prozac. You know what I mean? Like, right. it doesn't work like that. It's not so easy. You needed someone to talk to and yeah, they gave you drugs. I needed some time off. I needed people to say that what you went through was traumatic. You almost died a couple times. I'm going to cry. Sorry. That, like, you just went through a life-changing experience. Um, you were really scared. And that's normal. You know, but then I was deemed disabled at 24 and sent home away from my unit, you know, taken out of my context and then sent home to St. Louis where the war had just started. Nobody here knew what that meant. Nobody had yellow ribbons on their walls. Nobody had welcome home signs. There was no parade. It was like I just went to Christmas dinner and nobody said anything to me. And I think they just thought I was sitting behind a desk or something. And I was too traumatized to talk about it yet. You know, it took me a couple of years to even start to open up about what happened. So, um, yeah, I think things are a little better now, but we still call it this disease. Like you have a disorder. No, it's, I want to say that the society is disordered because they don't know how to welcome us back. It's not us. Yeah. Yeah. It's almost like they shamed you a little bit and with those, with those things. Like I shouldn't have those feelings. Right. I've heard it once said that the way we deploy troops too is just, it's hard because in back in World War Two, World War One, everybody went together. Yep. They were a unit and they came home together. Right. And there's there's almost this this um I you know, it's 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 like a plug and play almost. Yes. Yeah. And yes. and now you see individuals coming home, you know, one at a time, leaving a group that they've got extremely close to, a brotherhood, sisterhood that Nobody in the civilian life really understands no. that. Yeah. And then it's gone the next day. So that's an, another trauma that. Yes. And people talk about the first day they get up and have, didn't put the uniform on. And, and, of course, your ambition was to be a soldier. Right. And it got derailed a couple times there. Well, I just stopped to talk to a chaplain at Fort Leonard Wood, and he's getting ready to go to Korea, actually. And I said, um, we were talking about, like, well, what's the solution to this? Like, what are we doing wrong? Like, how do we fix this? You know, and my my first thing is always stop telling people they're mentally ill when they're not. That's easy. <laughs> but number two, I was like, but, you know, chaps, the um, the pushback would be you can't talk about your feelings when you're in a war zone. Like, you can't say that you're scared. You can't say that, like, I feel like I'm going to die here and never see my family again. You can't talk about any of that. And that it's like a, what I call is like a collective swallow. Like everybody just swallows it down and we act like it doesn't happen. And we just like go do our job. And I said, the pushback would be, you can't talk about feelings when that's going on. And he was like, no, I think that's absolutely what we have to do. And I was like, really? Like talk about I'm scared after a convoy. Yeah. Talk about it. I don't know if that would fly, but that's a step in the right direction. You know, when you show that like I'm scared, we're all scared together here. Like, it's not a secret. I mean, come on. We're all scared. It's a fact. But I, so I don't know if that's the, but me and him were talking about that the other day. I thought that was interesting way to think about it. Well, the, um, the other thing that, you know, I, I thought was kind of noteworthy in your discussion, your family had no idea what you were doing. No. And there's just absolutely no, no awareness from the public that you were probably in danger. You're driving a truck. Yeah. You know, it, Triangle of death, what's that? You yeah. probably didn't share that with them. Oh, no. And no. Uh, and then the other thing I thought that was you conditioned yourself after a while. You talked about when you came back home, your nieces and nephews 
you got a little skittish being around kids over I did. there. I did. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you hear that from veterans very often. They, you know, Dominic is an example that served in the Marines over there. He, he wouldn't go near the kids. Uh, so that it's a lot of barriers were thrown up that have yeah. to come down and yeah. probably take some time. Well, and, and just the, like you, like you mentioned, civilians don't have a, or your family doesn't have this frame of reference to understand like how brutal a war is. My sister, she drives for, she's a post office, post carrier in St. Peter's right here. And uh, she's like, Angie, it's so hot. And I said, add 20 degrees, add full battle rattle. There's heat coming from the engine. People are shooting at you and you have one bottle of water per day and two small meals in a bag. That's what Iraq was like. And you're pooping in a hole and you haven't had a shower in four months. That's what Iraq is like. But to her, the worst thing that she has is 100 degree weather you know, which it's, thank God, that's what we do this for so that you guys don't have to experience what we do. But like, there's just no frame of reference to explain like the level of brutality, you know, like sand in your ears for six months after you come home because it's, it got drilled in there from, uh, winds, you know, sandstorms and stuff, you know, there's just no, you just can't explain it even without being there. Yeah. I did, uh, I did say to, a. Uh a woman veteran from over there one time, I said, how do you stand that? You don't get the shower every three or four months. She said, we all smelled and everybody was just used to the smell. Yeah. Yeah. I had a colleague of mine when I uh, lived in Alaska who, uh, who got called up and he told me, he came back and he said, Hey man, we pinned our laundry tag to our shirt every day, just in case we didn't come back. And, uh, and, and we, and we had a good rapport and he said, man, everybody was scared. You didn't know if you were coming back. So you put your laundry tag on and, that way they knew where your laundry was. Yep. And, and I told him I make sure my bed was made and all my bags were packed because I was like, there's a good chance, and I don't want my troops to clean up my mess. You know, so it was like all neat and ready to go if something happened. Yeah. Well, Angie, the, uh, on a more humorous side, the, the one thing I want to bring up, there some logistical things that are challenging for women driving in convoys. And, and I, I remember the story – what was it, your sergeant came to you or to the commander? Yeah, commander and said, "Angie, you got to figure out a way for women to go to the bathroom. You're the the, the top woman, um, highest ranking. Yes, mm-hmm. and you had to figure that out. Yeah. So my solution to that problem was because they okay, we basically have a 56 hour convoy from uh, Kuwait to Baghdad. That's how long it ended up taking. It shouldn't take that long, but that's how long it took. So. uh we're not pulling over for females on the convoy, so you guys can figure it out. So I basically cut a hole in my pants with my K-bar, which is a big knife for those listening. And then um, I would get a jug that I cut the lid off the top, my water jug. And then I would just pee in the jug and then throw it out the window. But I would do it while I was driving. So I would tell my passenger, hold the wheel. And I would just get up in my chair. I mean, no, you guys can't see this, but I'm like, get up in my chair and pee in this little chair. It was terrible. It's so dehumanizing. <laughs> but, like, you got to go. What are you going to do? Yeah. So, yeah, I, that's that was my solution. And so you guys have on display my pair of pants with the hole in it that I never, you know, it's semi-sewed. But We do. Yeah. The um, so, so when you got in a convoy, it was driving nonstop at high rate of speed. Low rate of speed. That's L- what took us so long. Speed. Yeah. And, and very close together. Yep. You didn't want anything jumping out between you. Yep. And, and we've, we've had one of our veterans here that we recently uh, videoed a story, John. And he says to this day, he was over there, I think, eight, nine years. And he said, to this day, if somebody cuts me off, he said, I'm right back there. Yeah. Yeah, same. Well, I still drive really close to the car in front of me, and everybody who drives with me is like, St- "Would you back off?" I'm like, "What do you mean?" I'm to me, it's normal, you know. But yeah, 
It's st- some of those things stick with us you forever. Just, just don't yeah. come home and deprogram Not all the way. Not as easy as it sounds. Mm-mm. So you're home now. You've been home a while, and, and uh, you went through quite an experience trying to get off those drugs. There was one particular drug that was prescribed that is kind of the anti-anxiety drug. The it, it's a class of drugs called benzodiazepines. So Xanax, Valium, Ativan, Clonazepam. That last drug almost killed me. And you've you've kind of come full circle. You you did get home and you managed to go back to college, mm-hmm. and you've got a master's degree in social work now. Yep, yep. And you're sp- spending most of your time now advocating for better treatment of veterans. Tell us about that. Yeah. So uh, I was actually part of my story was featured in a documentary called Medicating Normal, and uh, it talks about people with normal reactions to trauma or you can't sleep because you have a night shift job or you have an eating disorder, um, a little depression from school, stuff like that. And um, so I was the female combat vet in the in the movie that got medicated for a normal reaction to trauma. And um, they followed me for about three years and then the film was wrapped and then I helped in the post-production where we did um, the outreach for the film and showed it all over the world. And we did about 190 screenings, 50 interviews with experts and stuff. And we just talked about these issues. Like, what does it mean to have a diagnosis? Where do those diagnoses come from? Uh, what should the average patient know about the medications they take? You know, how do you talk to your doctor about, like, what's my exit plan? Like, how long am I going to be on this? So all those issues, and we've done some veteran-specific screenings with uh, doctors that are really up on this. Um, and, it, yeah, it's been fun to just talk about it and just, like, reimagine, like, mental health care because we're failing in mental health. We have the highest suicide rate ever. We have the highest disability rate ever. So if these drugs are so great, why aren't they working? You know, that's the obvious question. Um, yes, yeah, so that's what I've been doing. And then three months ago, I stopped working for the film. I don't even think you know that. No, I stopped working for the film and now I started my own business and I actually coach people that are coming off of psychiatric drugs um, that are trying to cope with the withdrawal symptoms and trying to remake their life outside the system. Because I think despite everything that I've been through, I have managed to get a pretty cool life out of it. You know, it's not been fun and like I'm not healed by any means and I still have all the markers for post-traumatic stress and all that. I just have like a different relationship to that. I don't think of it as a disorder or something that's wrong with me. Um, so that's kind of what I do now is I help people like reimagine their lives without all those diagnosis and meds and feeling like you're broken and all that kind of stuff. We get to meet a number of veterans that come in here and and we do talk to a number of the more mo- the modern veterans there and you know, I I like to. I mean, it's naive again to think that they were they will be healed someday. But the long and short of it is, I they're going to be fighting a battle the rest yeah. of their life, aren't yeah, they? Yeah, I think. I mean, I I I think about that often. Like, what does it mean to really heal? Or like, how do you know if you're healed? And part of me is like, I don't want to forget those things that happened to me because if I did forget them, I mean those things keep me safe. Like those memories keep me safe. So, so I don't let men walk behind me because I don't want to get assaulted again. You know, it's, that's a normal reaction. Again, I don't, I drive the way I used to drive because I learned that that keeps me safe. So these are adaptive things that helped me stay alive. So do I want to forget that? Do I want to forget all the love I had for my brothers and sisters in service? No. So like if, if the society thinks that I'm disordered, okay, then so be it. But like, 
this is who this is who I am. This is what made me who I am. I don't want to forget. You know, it's kind of, but they, I think there's this, this really helpful analogy, like there's a difference between like a wound and a scar. So like, I'm not this open wound anymore, but it's definitely scarred over and it's not going to, I don't want to get plastic surgery on it. Like there's a scar there. So it's just like my relationship to those scars now is a little different. You know, the other thing that I guess I'm disappointed to hear, but you, you do see a lot of veteran help groups cropping up all over the country, uh, therapeutic this and, and, and that, and uh, but you don't see the government providing help. It's it's individual groups of former veterans helping other veterans, and it seems like the best help out there is a veteran yeah. helping another veteran. Totally, totally. I just went on a 10, what was it? I'm sorry, seven-day skiing trip in Mammoth Mountain, California, and I hadn't been on any trips like for you know a couple years, probably seven years. I haven't been anywhere. No veteran, like, specific things. And I was like, Angie, just go. Just, like, just go. So I went, and I'm terrified of ski lifts. Like, I, I'm scared of heights. Like, I have I have visual disabilities that have stayed with me, so it makes my symptoms worse when I'm high off the ground. And I tried even, like, to get out of it. Like, okay, well, the gas is really expensive, so I shouldn't go. <laughs> you know, I was trying to come up with these excuses, but I ended up going. And um, just, like, the love for my fellow veterans, it felt like just the greatest group of people. It was just eight of us and a couple instructors and just as usual they showed up and they were um super supportive and like Angie if you can't do it it's cool but I was so scared of that ski lift I like I couldn't ski and finally on the last day they're like we're going up there with you and I was like you're gonna go with me oh my god and then I had a blast I skied 16 times that day like I could not have done that without that little bit of push from you know the people that understand me and they one of the guys even looked at me and he's like I can tell that you have been through a lot and like you don't really talk about it, and I was like, just that recognition, you know, that like normal people might not notice, but he did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. pretty healing, huh? Totally, totally. Well, I was I'm kind of interested in uh, if you're willing to talk about it about uh, your dog. Give us a little bit of background about the dog, and uh, give us the name. And so this is Raider. He's my second service dog. Uh, my first one, his name was GI Joe, and he was from a trainer here in St. Louis. And he died last year. And so uh, probably two years before he died, actually, because I knew it was coming. You know it's coming. But I have some friends that work at a different agency in Washington State. And they were like, Angie, you really need to consider getting on the waiting list. And I kicked and screamed because I was like, no, I don't want people to know I'm disabled. I don't want to stick out like a sore thumb. Like, I don't want that. And they're like, okay, but Angie, you still do have limitations. And I was like, well, okay. You know, because, like, I don't even want to admit that sometimes. But um, so I got on the list and we trained for five weeks last May. So he just had his one. We just had our one year anniversary together. Um, and I don't know how to explain it, but it, I feel like he's like an extension of my nervous system. Like he keeps me grounded and like not panicking and I'm able to shop and be a little bit more independent um, than usual because just the last six years has been kind of rough coming off the meds and like trying to relearn how to live Um because I don't really have a choice. I can't take them because they damage me so severely. So um, he's really helped. And we have a lot of fun. We hike a lot. He loves hiking. So we, we do really long hikes whenever possible. And it's nice. And he's always happy and he's smiling. So it makes everybody else smile. And then they're nicer to me. So it, like, kind of works out. <laughs> what yeah. a great partnership. You totally. Know? Totally. Yeah. Jim? The um, I mean, it's it's great. You know, I, I know that um, you share on your Facebook you know quite a bit of your adventures out west and it sounds like you're having a good time and 
You look great. Thank you. The, um, you know, so you're, you're still involved in trying to help veterans with your company. Tell us a little bit about your company that you started. Just it's just, it's just, uh, I'm just doing like cons- consultations and coaching. So more of like a holistic life coaching. I hate the word life coach. I hate coach even that word. I just hate it because I don't want to be a coach of anything. I'm just like, like supportive person who has been through the similar stuff that when you've had it really rough, but like I found a new path that's not so medicated and disempowering to say like you're broken and you'll be on medication for the rest of your life and you have to do all these stupid therapies that don't really work and you have to, you know, like almost become this disabled archetype. So I just, I have, I think I've found, I've been successful at finding like a way to live with disabilities and thrive and kind of like pave your own path. So my healing journey has taken me down this van life thing where I live in a van and I travel and I go to these awesome places and I see people that were in my units before that I haven't seen in 20 years. And we have really healing conversations that it's better than therapy. Like just go to the source, go to the people that we were with you, you know, um, get in tune with nature, like slow everything down, go slow, you know, walk with your feet in the water on the pebbles, breathe fresh air, um, all these things that like you can't do just sitting on your couch at home taking meds. So that's the path that that I'm living now, and I just I'm just trying to help people, civilians and veterans, just find that new healing path for them. That's not that's more empowering, you know. So do you have a website? Oh yeah. So I actually don't have a website yet. I'm almost there, but I've I've been working with people for three months now. I mean, you have a design. I, I saw do, it's design. almost done. It's so close. It's so close, but I'm a perfectionist. So, no. <laughs> people can, if you just follow me on, I guess, on Facebook or YouTube, uh, it's he- Being Human RV. My links are right there in my little box. So, you just click the link and you'll take you to the appointment slots and everything. But, um, I've ju- yeah, I've just really been, honest to God, like the similarity that I find is like people have this extremely strong human spirit within them. And like you'd be surprised the stuff that people go through and they're still alive. And it's like, holy shit. Like I just sit in awe of it, you know? And I, I think that's probably what you saw in me, but like you have it too. You know what I mean? And I just think we don't, we don't recognize that. Like you can get through so much. It's not fair and it's not okay that you have to do all this work to get to a nice life. But we do have a really strong spirit inside of us. Yeah. Well, that's exciting. You know, I mean, the, the, new business and the fact that you're out there helping probably more veterans than civilians at this point no right now it's actually more civilians but i'm gonna start i think i'm gonna do some like group coaching around veterans issues and do like a little course or something i i have lots of ideas about it so i'm getting there it's just like it's a lot of work to start up you know start from scratch well and it just I, i don't know it's it's i don't know whether it's the times we're in but you know i i think that we're challenged a lot these days and you know, I mean, PTSD wasn't the word back in World War II, and, you know, it became a, but it, it's not, it's not combat, it's it's post-traumatic stress, you know, disorder, you know, is, is what it is. Stress comes in, in all sorts of buckets, you know, and, and uh, caused by many, many things. Oh, yeah. So it's just not about soldiers in combat, and I, I don't think people understand, you know, when they got it, you know. Vietnam veterans that come into museum on a regular basis are still struggling with uh, some of those things, mm. and that's fifty years. I know. Yeah, you you had at one point said something like the uh, Vietnam veterans kind of helped you guys understand some of these things. Yeah, they did. 
But um, so, what else would you want to tell us, Angie? Uh, I don't know. We covered so much. I feel like you covered everything. I don't know. I I think maybe the only other thing is just like. I guess to anybody listening, like whatever your struggle is, like you mentioned, you know, plenty of us have like domestic violence or experience racism or other forms of oppression or like socioeconomic struggles. I mean, all those things are traumatizing. You know, ours just happened to be combat or a war or sexual assault or whatever, but everybody has their thing, you know. So I think just to really critically think about like how do I heal from this? What can I what can I learn out of it? What meaning can I bring into it? And don't just accept like that pill and that therapy to keep you focused on that issue. There's other things out there, other methods of healing. Right. And Angie, if someone if someone's struggling and they don't know how to identify that, you know, what would you be your recommendation on how to how to for someone to reach out and, and just touch base with someone to to talk about it and so they can identify it and, and and you know, be able to get that off their chest, or be able to communicate and start start the healing process. Yeah, I think I'm going to actually answer your question with a weird answer, but I think each one of us has to learn how to listen better. Like to not when somebody comes to you and they say, "I'm struggling," I'm like having a really hard time. I need somebody to talk to. That we don't like try to fix it right away, or we don't try to send them off. Like, oh, I can't help you. Call the one eight hundred number. Or oh, I can't help you. Go see a therapist. You know, all these things that we're taught right now. So I would say like you are that person. So when somebody comes to you, whether it's a civilian or a veteran, and they're like, hey, I'm struggling with something, to just shut up and listen and just let them be who they are and let them feel their feelings and just be with them. So if you're that other person that you, like you asked, if you're that person that is having struggles, just remember that like not everybody can really hear you or listen or hold that space for you that you need. So it might take a couple tries. I mean, it's taken me years to like find those people that I can really hang on to, but don't give up and don't like take, you know, that first line of help that seems to be the easy line, like the psychiatry office or like, you know, you can do lots of things at the same time. So I always think like there's a magic potion. Like I have to talk to people. I have to be in nature. I have to be alone. I like my quiet time. I have to write poetry. You know, I do all these things that keep me in a balanced way. So we each have to find that for us. And so you might hit a lot of dead ends where people are not listening to you and they're just handing you a pill and they're sending you off to somebody else, but just please do not give up because there is really good people in the world for sure. You know, Angie, I want to just thank you real quick for uh, reminding me about your poetry because uh, your poetry really impressed me. And your poetry happens to be on our website and your story, and it's uh, it's amazing because it puts things into perspective. and And I think I even asked her one time, you know, I, I I never understood poetry, but when I read Angie's poetry the first time, it made me kind of understand what what poetry actually makes you feel. And and she she explained that better than anybody had ever in my life. But if you go to our website, you know, you can you can read her poetry, which is. I guess you wrote that shortly after you returned from Iraq. No, it was actually written like six years ago. Six years yep. ago. Mm-hmm. But it's uh, it's amazing, I think. Thank you so much. I'm proud of it. Well, we're proud of you, and, and we thank you for your service and everything you've done for this country. There's not many people built like you, and and you're, you're a pretty uh, precious commodity for this country, and we thank you so much for everything you've done. Thank you so much. Thank you. Is there anything else you guys want uh, to tell the audience before we sign off? I just want to say thank you to Angie. She's taught us a lot, and it's the kind of story 
you know, it's 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 not always the happy stories you tell in the museum, but what we try to do is communicate to the public of what our veterans actually have faced, and it is uh, you can't sugarcoat that. You you really got to tell it like it is, and and hope that people listen, and and maybe just maybe uh, VA and you know they start giving the veterans the right care, and and that's important. Angie, we'll give you the last word. Well, I just want to say thank you to the St. Charles County. Veterans Museum. I, I didn't even know this was here. And I found it as a pin on an app saying that there was free RV parking. That's how I found out. And I was like, what? There's a museum in my town? What? And then, you know, I'm, I'm shy and like humble probably to at fault. But I was like, can I just schedule a tour? So I did. And I came in and I, and I looked around. And I was like, where's the female veteran? stuff and I, that stuck out to me because i'm a female veteran and then i was like well angie why don't you tell them that you're a female veteran and you're from here so i just want to say thank you for being open to that and for holding the space for me to tell my story and then to share that with others that's really important to me and it, it makes me feel proud that my um my uniform is in my hometown and my story is here and, and maybe someday it'll help somebody so thank you for doing that and it's funny i i haven't begged a woman to bring her story in here and Six hours now. Uh, I had lunch with a, a woman, a veteran, and, and she keeps saying, I didn't do anything significant. I said, come on. Yeah. If you signed on the dotted line, you did. You were a trailblazer. And yeah. from what we know, that you experience, you were at risk mm-hmm. anytime. You know, so it's, uh, we're really proud of the women's stories that are in here. And, and we want we want everybody to know that. And, and, you know, by and large, women endured more hardships. They They were... They were at risk more so sometimes from our own troops. And it's important to tell the women's stories in our museum. Well, thank you guys. We're going to go ahead and sign off with a dog tag podcast at the St. Charles County Veterans Museum. is brought to you by the St. Charles County Veterans Museum. The museum is a 501c3 nonprofit business. Do you like our podcast? With your support, we'll continue to bring you great programming. If you'd like to donate, go to sccvetsmuseum.org and click on Donate. This podcast is sponsored by the Renee S. Real Estate Agency, located here in O'Fallon, Missouri. She is licensed in Missouri and Illinois and focuses on your personal and commercial insurance needs. Her office is located at 2764 Highway K, O'Fallon, Missouri, 63368. She can be reached at 636-379-9556 or by email at reneesry at allstate.com, R-E-N-E-E-E-S-S-A-R-Y at allstate.com. If you are shopping for insurance and want an active agent that will educate and advise you on the coverage you need, reach out to her. Join us next time on the Dog Tag Podcast from the St. Charles County Veterans Museum as we discuss our unsung heroes, the merchant marine sailors of World War II. Most people know the United States entered World War II when the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor, but American sailors were in harm's way many months before America entered the war. In May 1941, seven months before the attack on Pearl Harbor, the unarmed and clearly marked American freighter Robin Moore sailing to Africa was stopped by a German U-boat. 
The crew and passengers, which included men, women, and a child, were ordered to abandon the freighter, which was then sunk. Later in August 1941, two torpedoes from a U-boat slammed into a U.S. freighter, the SS Longtaker. The unescorted and unarmed ship sank within a minute of being torpedoed. Twenty-four of the freighter's 27-man crew perished. We were not at war, yet merchant marine sailors were being killed. Our guest next week in the studio will be Charles Hoffman. Charles served in the Merchant Marine from 1943 to 1945. Charles was lured into the Merchant in 1943 and was promised all of the benefits of Navy sailors. Charles would learn Merchant Marine received none of the benefits but all of the risks of convoy duty.